You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Gray. Join me as we cover topics about nutrition, health, and lifestyle so you can have ancestral health in a modern world. Hi, and welcome back to the Ancestral Elements Podcast, episode 26, Indulgence, How Cravings Can Feed Your Biology. So I want to talk about cravings and kind of what goes on around this idea of cravings. Why is it that we crave things? Is it necessary to our biology? Is our biology driving these cravings that we get? Or is it solely just gluttony? Um, We'll kind of dive in and out of these concepts, and we'll take a look at why there might be a good argument for indulging your cravings if done properly. So I want to start with an ancestral perspective. If you look at early humans, an interesting theory that has started to gain a little more traction in the recent years is the one of how humans developed brain size. It's often postulated that uh, meat consumption and specifically the invention of fire and cooking food had a lot to do with that. And I'm sure that's true on a lot of levels. But there's also another compelling theory about humans' kind of addiction or their indulgence that they have towards carbohydrates. When you're talking about an ancestral carbohydrate, honey is like the king of the crop. You don't get anything anything else really in a natural environment that doesn't have to be processed way down. And it's just raw form. There isn't anything else like honey in nature. You could argue that maple syrup or birch sap, you know, you can get it as sweet, but it has to be really, it has to be reduced down, cooked down to develop the sugars and those carbohydrates. But honey, you can just eat it as it is raw right out of the honeycomb. And that's been done for really since the beginning of human existence from what we can tell. And it's this idea that our desire for carbohydrates kind of pushed our human species to grow and learn and expand. And it was the glucose and the honey that really gave us the energy and the fuel to develop our brains and further develop the human species. And that from that, we were able to expand and get into areas of fire creation, for example, and cooking animal foods and developing more and more tools and techniques around nutrition. And if you think about that, I mean, if you've spent, let's say, just six months going without any type of sugar, and you're just living off of complex carbohydrates from tubers and animal protein, you know, that's usually fairly lean. I mean, you can get fat from, you know, wild pig or bear or something like that, but you are missing kind of that instant gratification, that sugar, specifically honey, really brings to the table. And so the desire to get such a quick sugar hit, such a calorie-dense, calorically-dense food into your body becomes crucial. And it makes complete sense that people would really, really treasure that and seek that food out in a natural environment. I mean, I certainly would. It would be one of the things I would really want to be around and have a good access to because you can get it all year. And it's something that your body utilizes all year. It's one of those foods that really doesn't have a a seasonality to it. 
I mean, there is something to be said about seasonal eating, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit, but these foods where you can get them all year round, basically, they tend to really work with your biology in a lot of different ways. And honey's interesting because it's not like cane sugar, for example. It has a slower uptake of glucose into your liver and your muscles. So it's a slower release through your body so you don't get insulin spikes as quickly as you do with something like white sugar. Same thing with maple syrup as well, or even birch sap um, and birch syrup. So all of those have these kind of medicinal qualities to them that will inhibit a drastic spike in glucose, whereas a domesticated crop like cane and cane sugar being cooked down, it doesn't have that effect. It's immediate uptake and it really jacks the insulin way, way up. And it's a load on the pancreas. And with wild honey, you can get quite a bit of it and you would probably eat a lot of it relatively quickly. I mean, you wouldn't leave it just sitting around for a long period of time, I would imagine. You would want to utilize those carbohydrates pretty quickly because that's just pure energy that your body can quickly use. Now, you may have a lot of it throughout the year, but it also takes time to replenish the hives. It takes time for bees to regenerate honey. So you're not going to be eating honey every single day, but you're going to have enough of it to where it's going to make up a significant portion of your calories, let's say in a given year, if you were to average things out. And honey has other purposes than just for food. It's also a humectant, and it's antiviral and antibacterial on the skin. So th there's other uses. And then you have things like beeswax and honeycomb that you can utilize. So to me, evolutionarily, that is a craving that should be indulged quite frequently, actually, because it's beneficial to your overall nutrition. And that's where things can get a little messy when it comes to nutrition guidelines. You know, when you start to demonize food groups, demonize sugar. It's a slippery slope because there are profound nutritional benefits to a high glucose food like honey or maple syrup. And again, it's got some buffering mechanisms in there that slow the absorption rate of glucose. And so it's very different than white sugar. There's absolutely an argument to be made against white sugar and over-consuming white sugar. It becomes less of an issue when you're talking about natural derived sweeteners like honey, like maple syrup, like birch syrup. It's a completely different thing. And equating the two and lumping them together to say all sugar is bad and detrimental to your health, it's just not true. You need carbohydrates. You know, demonizing carbs is not the answer. It requires some nuanced thinking, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and just say sugar is bad and that's the end of the story because it's not true. It's very possible that sugar has actually made us who we are, which kind of leads me to this next idea of bioregional eating within seasonal eating. So we know most likely about seasonal eating. I'm sure you've all heard that term being thrown around. Now, bioregional eating is a little more specific. It's within the umbrella of seasonal eating, but eating in your own bioregion basically means you're going to be eating foods that are essentially surrounding you outside of your door on your landscape. Now, seasonality is built into that, but if you can build your body 
from foods and from an environment that you spend the majority of your time in, you're going to be adapted to that environment. You're going to be building your body from that environment. That's what hunting and gathering is all about. That's what foraging plant foods and hunting animals is for. It's so you can build your body from the environment that you live in primarily. It's that's a lot different than seasonal eating because you can import foods during the season, but they could be from let's say Australia or they could be from Mexico or Canada. It may be that season for them and you might be even in the same season, but it doesn't set your body up the way that eating from your own bioregion does. And what I mean by setting your body up nutritionally. I mean fluctuations in your microbiome. It changes within the given season. So your microbiome is this ever-changing responsive system that interacts with your internal environment and external environment that you find yourself in. So in the summertime, your microbiome is going to be vastly different than it is in the wintertime. Even if you're living in the exact same place, it's going to be very, very different and comprised of very different species. And remember, the microbiome is made up of bacteria, fungi, archaea, protist, and viruses. So five different species, five different kingdoms of life are sitting in there. And depending on the time of year, those things are going to fluctuate up and down. And it does this because of this bioregional eating. Because when things are in season, you're going to be eating what's in season and your body's going to be primed for that. Your microbiome is primed for that seasonal eating. And not just seasonal eating, but bioregional seasonal eating. You see what I'm getting at? So if you travel, let's say in the wintertime you like to, you live in the northern hemisphere and you like to go to the southern hemisphere because it's summer. Let's say you live in Canada and you like to go to Australia. It's a nice commonwealth country and it's easy to travel, right? A lot of people do that. So it's summertime and you just basically hopped seasons, right? Your microbiome shifts drastically. Within days, your microbiome has shifted based on the foods that you're eating. Have you ever noticed when you're in a tropical climate, you tend to crave fruit? And it's not just because fruit just seems to be kind of lying around and it's what people are eating. People are eating the fruit because it has protective mechanisms from that environment. See, that's the thing about basing your nutrition off of environmental demand. You do that inherently without even really realizing it. So your body will start craving fruit when you're in a tropical place because it turns out fructose, the sugar in fruit, it actually starts to repair the skin. So if you get some sunburn or some damage from UV light that you're taking in all of a sudden from being in a winter climate and you transport to a summer climate, your body's going to crave fruit. You, you need to feed your biology that fructose because it starts to repair the skin faster. It starts to repair collagen and it starts to induce a cellular replication to kind of slough off any damaged cells that were caused by UV damage, UVB. And so occasionally there is a legitimate biological need for your food cravings. And maybe not just occasionally. There can be 
an argument for understanding why you're craving certain foods. So really the formula is this. It's shifts in the environment equal shifts in you equal nutritional change. Does that make sense? So the second your environment shifts, your microbiome shifts, and that's going to set you up for needing a nutritional change in your diet that you weren't previously getting because things weren't available to be eating. So like for me right now, loquats are in kind of full swing. I have a loquat tree a few hundred feet from my door and I'm eating a ton of loquats. They're only here for a short time, just kind of through a few months into the summer, and they don't store very well. So I'll just sit and I'll gorge on loquats until I just don't feel like eating them anymore. But I'm also getting medicinal compounds and nutrition out of those that my body needs for this particular time of year. I mean, when Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine, this is kind of what he meant. At least I like to think so. Anyway, you have to eat food when it's ready to be eaten, because then your body is ready to utilize it, and the environment dictates what grows. And if you're truly connected to your food and to your environment, Obviously, you would want to be eating food that was being grown in the environment that you're actually in. Does that make sense? I mean, it does to me. That makes all the sense in the world. But I don't think that many people think about that, right? So basically, positioning of the sun is going to dictate what will be growing. And it's also going to dictate your own microbiome and your own biological processes that are happening in your body. And so the food that can be grown in that environment is going to be directly impacted by your own microbiome and your own biology in that environment. That's the stuff you want to be building your body from. That's what actually feeds your nutrition in that given moment. Very, very different than eating tomatoes from Chile in December. Not that eating tomatoes from Chile in December is going to be harmful to your body, but it's not going to be as nutritious for you in that given time, right? You're not going to be getting the most out of that food. This is really about optimizing the food to fit with your nutrition. And that's what you want because anything else is kind of anti-nutrients. There's a lot of anti-nutrients going around in food. And we've talked about some of those, you know, things like goitrogens in the brassica family that rob iodine from your body. You know, again, there's a time and a place to eat brassica, you know, and large quantities of it, but then it needs to be stopped. Just like there's a time and a place for me to be eating a ton of loquats, but then I stop because they're not growing on the tree outside anymore. I'm not eating those day after day. I'm getting a lot for a short period of time and then they're gone. And that's historically how we've always eaten. Because in nutrition, when it comes to food, too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. At least too much of a good thing that's drawn out day after day for decades. That can be very damaging to your health, even if it's considered quote-unquote healthy. So when I talk about this stuff, when I talk about bioregional eating, and that being within seasonal eating, 
This isn't some just kind of cute novel idea that I'm bringing forward. This is very important to your health and to your overall nutrition and the way that your biology functions through the seasons and through the changing years. This keeps you anti-fragile because if you constantly have mismatches between your nutrition and your biology, you become fragile and it starts to weaken your immunity. It starts to weaken your microbiota, which is where predominantly your immune system is derived from. And things like neurotransmitters, right? We've talked about it in previous episodes. If you haven't listened to Building the Blood and Metabolites, go back and listen to that episode. But this is stuff that becomes really crucial. And it's easy to just think that, oh, healthy, you know, good foods are going to be healthy all of the time. Doesn't matter the time of year or the, if they're in season. As long as they're ripe, they must be healthy. And it's just not true. And it's not just changes in the microbiota from season to season. You get changes in overall metabolism and the way your metabolism responds to foods. This is another piece to it, where in the summer months, because there's so much UV in the atmosphere, and you're taking that in, carbohydrates, simple sugars, your body's going to be utilizing much, much more efficiently, and it's going to be burning it off way, way better than it would in the winter months. Are you with me? So it absolutely is linked in to environment your nutrition that is. And it's not just the microbiota that it affects, it's affecting every single system. With extra UV light in the atmosphere, you're going to be getting extra vitamin D uptake, which also plays in with gluconeogenesis and the way that insulin sensitivity interacts with your biology. Another good reason to be eating higher glucose foods when you have ample amounts of vitamin D in the environment. It's also going to play into the way things repair and the way things oxidize cellularly and how the cells end up getting rid of those byproducts, how they're redoxing, how the redox pathways function. So all of these mechanisms are highly tuned in, again, with your internal environment and your external environment. And depending on if your nutrition is in balance with all of that, it's going to either be a perfect match or it's not going to be a very good match at all. It's going to be highly mismatched. So something like drinking a smoothie in the dead of winter, maybe not the best idea when you start thinking about this. Not unless you're drinking a fish smoothie or something, something with like high omega-3s. Maybe in the fall if there's a salmon run, but uh, I <laughs> good luck trying to do that. You know, these things, timing matters when it comes to food and nutrition. And it matters because your body changes and your nutritional needs have to change when your body changes. I mean, probably the most talked about thing when it comes to cravings is during pregnancy, right? You hear that all the time. You get weird food combinations of pregnant women when they're eating things like pickles and ice cream or <laughs> pickles and mashed potatoes, right? All these bizarre combinations that just sound good. It's because there's such a huge nutritional demand on a changing internal environment in the body that they're basically just needing to try to keep up. And a lot of times it has to do with what the person nutritionally needs in that given 
time frame of fetal development. So you'll see things like minerality and foods that are high in minerals and high in fat and calorically dense foods, simple carbohydrates, fruit, sugar, things of that nature. They'll be eating that stuff way more frequently and have cravings for that those types of food way more frequently than they normally would. And that's just down to essentially demand on the body from a kind of just a sheer biological perspective. And if you pay attention to those, it actually may be more beneficial than it is harmful. Now, if you're eating gallons and gallons of ice cream every day, probably not very beneficial. But if you have that craving, recognize it and then try to swap it with something a little more natural. So if you feel like you need fat and sugar, go to some honey because there's fat in honey. And chances are, if you can do a swap like that, if you can do a substitution of food, it's going to cure that craving. So it's okay to get cravings. We all get cravings and we all want foods. I mean, that is why we're here, essentially. And that's why we eat. It's to kind of fulfill those desires. But if you find yourself constantly running to a lot of just industrialized or domesticated foods, try to do a bit of a swap if you can. Try to swap the just plain white sugar with maple sugar or honey, you know, if that's kind of your go-to thing. You know, if it's a lot of simple carbohydrates like pastries or something like that, try to swap it with some more complex carbohydrates, something like sweet potato or or even wild rice to kind of fill the that craving niche. Because a lot of times your body will be in the right general area for kind of dictating what you need. But if you don't normally have those foods all the time, then you have no reference point for it. Your body has no reference point for the food. Just like if you had never eaten liver, you're not going to crave liver. But if that's something you regularly eat, you're going to develop cravings for it because your body's going to recognize when it needs it. There's another interesting phenomenon called pica. This is something that happens in pregnant women as well as people in general. But pica is classified as a psychological disorder, but it's where you have cravings for non-nutritive substances or anti-nutrient substances in some cases. Things like dirt or sheetrock or hair, these kind of weird, bizarre things um, that people will eat. And a lot of that is down to the body needing specific nutrition that it's just not getting, and it will try to source it from anywhere possible. So with like people eating dirt, you see that in kids sometimes, where kids will eat a bunch of dirt and soil. A lot of that's down to microbes and getting minerals in the body, where if they're deficient a little bit, they'll just naturally eat a little bit of dirt. Um, not necessarily a terrible thing if you just do it here and there, but it definitely could end up leading to some severe intestinal issues if you're eating a ton of dirt or sheetrock or hair, right? Like, not the best thing to be eating. Um, I mean, I think they classified it as a psychological disorder because it's not normal behavior. Um, and they were getting it, they were seeing it and diagnosing it a lot with things like anorexia and bulimia. Um, again, a lot of that is down to such demand for nutrition on a 
cellular level that you're craving weird things that you would never crave. You know, similarly with being pregnant, your body has a massive demand that it has never had before. Right. And so anytime you basically get a massive void or a massive need for nutrition, those cravings can get a little strained. And you see that with something like pica. And really, those cravings are there for a reason. There's a biological reason for craving something, although those cravings can be misdirected and kind of misinterpreted. There's usually insight within those cravings. You might have to tweak it. You might have to train your body and your particular biology to handle those a bit differently. And so you can have some tools to handle them differently. But know that they're there for a reason and recognize when they come up. You know, that's what I try to do. If I get a craving for something, I'll ask myself, okay, why am I craving this? Could I be lacking something in my diet? And is this the best thing to be eating a large quantity of? And I'll base it off of not only seasonality, but my own bioregion that I'm in. And sometimes the answer is yes, and I'll just go for it. Um, but other times it's, no, I'm going to make this substitution because it's going to be that much healthier. And I recognize what my body is actually telling me that I need rather than me just jumping to the easiest, fastest solution. And it takes a lot of the guilt away when you approach your cravings like that, because I think that there can be a lot of kind of underlying guilt about overeating a certain food. But if you know why you're doing it and you recognize it, and whether you make the quote-unquote right decision or the wrong decision, at least you're recognizing your eating patterns, which is another important piece to this. You need to recognize your eating patterns and why you're eating the way you're eating. I mean, that is the number one way to shift your nutrition and to shift your diet, is to just recognize patterns of eating and realize what you're eating. Because a lot of people don't. A lot of people eat kind of blindly. It's easy to do. You prop yourself up in front of the TV or the computer or you listen to a podcast and you just kind of mindlessly shovel things in. And a lot of times you don't even realize how much you've eaten. I mean, it's a very, very common problem and everybody does it to some extent, at least occasionally. And a lot of that has to do with just the sheer disconnection we have with our food because we're not out getting it ourselves. We're not killing the animals. We're not processing them. We're not picking the plants and processing the plants down to be edible for food, right? It takes that whole process and kind of shortens it all. It truncates it. And so we intercept somewhere kind of in the middle of getting this nice, perfectly packaged piece of meat and the thought is out of it. And so if you're looking to make some diet changes, some food habit changes in your life, that's the place to start. You have to recognize the different patterns that you take on. And it'll change, again, throughout the season. It'll change throughout your stress response, right? There's going to be different demands externally and internally. And you're going to have to constantly tweak your nutrition. But that requires being very cognizant of how your body's feeling how your body's integrating the food that you're taking in and what it's going to utilize the best. It requires a lot of time and a lot of patience with yourself. It's not something that's really talked about or taught. 
uh, very often anymore. We intrinsically know how to do this, and you can absolutely learn how to do it, but it requires a little bit of thought because it's not built into the culture anymore. We're not eating from our bioregion and eating seasonally very often. And so these things have kind of fallen by the wayside. But you can definitely develop patterns around this style of eating. It's very possible to do it. And cravings obviously coincide with how hungry you are as well. Because if you're starving, you would eat stuff you don't necessarily love just because you're hungry. It's interesting too when you're looking at kids and introducing new foods to kids. A lot of the time, kids are picky, picky eaters, because they're actually not that hungry. And the fact that anytime you introduce a new food to your child, it should be a neutral response, meaning you shouldn't try to load it with, ooh, this tastes so good, you know, yum. Any of those types of inflections, it enables the child to essentially draw conclusions too early before they've made up their own mind. See, the relationship between your food and your body is only yours and should only be yours. And so if you're having people insert their own opinions and kind of own agendas onto your eating, it's not going to work out well. That's something that has to be derived naturally. And so when it comes to being picky, a lot of that is just down to not being hungry enough. Like if your toddler won't eat their green beans, I guarantee you they would eat green beans if they skipped a meal or two. I'm not suggesting that necessarily, but I'm just saying if you get hungry enough, your cravings will be intensified. And that's how you learn evolutionarily to incorporate new foods into your diet. You see it with other species all the time. You know, take a deer, for example. We'll be foraging on green grasses in the spring and on a ton of new plant growth. And as it gets into the fall and winter, there becomes less and less for it to eat. And it's going to be eating its less desirable foods during the shortest times of the year. And people have that same trajectory when it comes to food. You have that same response. And so the hunger response takes some time to kind of learn how to utilize and to funnel into kind of positive eating rather than just ravenously eating anything you can get your hands on. Because there's so much food in this environment. We have way too much food. Too many options, really. And so if you can again, kind of narrow it down, especially to a variety of foods that are right outside your door, it's going to set you up far better than eating any food you want at any given time that isn't based on any type of bioregion or season that you're even living in. My recommendation is to always try to find foods that are very, very local to you, that you could easily drive to or walk to, for that matter, and get, especially wild foods, because wild foods contain far more nutrition than their domesticated counterparts. You know, the loquats, for example, they are similar to a plum. They are a non-native species to here. 
but I'm still going to utilize them because they're, I guess, a feral food, a semi-wild food, but they can be utilized and should be utilized. It's not just about eating native species to your bioregion. I mean, that's great when you can do that, but it's not really realistic because there's so many invasive species that aren't necessarily endemic to our region. You know, same thing with me foraging fennel. You know, that is a European plant that got domesticated here, and now it's everywhere. And it's a great herb to utilize. Fantastic with loquats. It's a great little salad you can make, a little fruit salad you can make with some fresh fennel and maybe some mint and loquats. It's great. You know, so, but all the, that is within my bioregion, and it's all based on seasonality. I can't get fennel, wild fennel, all year round. I can only really get it through the spring. And same thing with loquats. So pairing these things becomes, it becomes fun, really. You can kind of base your cuisine, base your dishes and your meals on what's out and around you. If you have a garden, you'll have far more variety. Again, you're dealing with mostly domesticated species, and that's fine. At least you know it's going to be fresh and it's going to be in season. Otherwise, it wouldn't be growing. And so utilize these things. You could utilize a farmer's market, you know, um, anything like that. But try to incorporate some wild foods that are right around you if you can. Even some dandelion greens, especially this time of year can be great. Or stinging nettle, for example, is another really nice green. You can substitute it just like spinach. And it's actually way more beneficial than spinach. So there's always things to look to. There's food everywhere if you know what you're looking for. And it takes time, but you can always learn. So I think that'll do it for this week. Again, thank you so much for listening. Stay well, stay healthy, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave me a rating and review. This will help people find the podcast so we can grow the audience. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to talk to me personally, go to the ancestralelements.com slash community to get access to the forum. We go through each episode every week and talk about these concepts and ideas in greater detail, and you can connect with other listeners. Thank you.